0: What started with a virus so small your eyes couldn't see it? This is about providing a future for humanity. We're schaffen this. The
1: Commission has decided to find Google 4.34 billion euros. Piano.
0: Hey, oh. This
1: is Europe's man on the moon moment. We are innovating here and we hope that you like it. L'Europe, d'une force commune d'intervention.
2: Long live Europa. Long live Europe. Vive Europe.
3: Hello and welcome to this edition of Europe Calling, a podcast from the European Commission unpacking its key initiatives and taking a long look inside.
4: Throwing a spotlight on the big political picture and its impact on our everyday lives here in Europe with the people at the heart of the issues.
3: With me, Paul Anderson,
4: and me, Olaf Potts.
3: Today we're focusing on the Digital Services Act, the DSA, Europe's comprehensive legislation covering our online life and rights and the activities of the big players dominating the scene and the new
4: obligations on them. And we're joined by the woman who's arguably doing more than anyone else to shape and hone the DSA. Margarete Vestager, Executive Vice President of the European Commission for a Europe Fit for the Digital Age since 2019 and European Commissioner for Competition since 2014.
3: A very warm welcome to Europe calling, Vice President Vestager.
1: Well, thank you very much and thank you for having me. This is great. Now let's kick off straight away with a couple of
4: questions close to people's direct interests and burning the news headlines in recent weeks. For example, Elon Musk's confused-to-say-the-least takeover of Twitter, officials all over being banned from using TikTok on their work phones and looming mass redundancies in the tech world. So, Margarete Vesteir, how would you characterize the state of social media today?
1: Well, I just uh, read a, a news article about researchers who've been following uh, Twitter since the Musk uh, takeover, founding that the number of uh, anti-Semitic tweets have more than doubled. That, of course, is extremely worrying because it shows how much the signaling of the leadership means as to how things are actually being managed. On the positive side, I also saw that youngsters, they were trying to limit their screen time. So get off the screen and into uh, playing, conversation, uh, having fun for real with their friends. And that, of course, is two quite opposing things. But it also shows that we need to do something in order to make sure that on the one hand side that we, you know, protect and cherish our freedom of expression, while at the same time make sure that illegal content is dealt with, harmful content is dealt with, so that you can feel safe and and liberated uh, when you use social media.
3: On on the question of Twitter, is it a concern um, for you that so much power has been concentrated in
1: the hands of its new owner? Well, I don't think it's so much a question of uh, ownership. I think it's a question about the signaling and how you approach the power of the platform that you own or that you lead. Because before the Digital Services Act, well, a lot of decisions, they were taken in closed boardrooms or by, you know, in this case, single owners that would, you know, in in a very profound manner shape our interactions, shape our society, shape how our democracy could develop. So we are in times where the fact that things are more in flux also shows that we need democracy to step up.
4: And switching from Twitter to TikTok, was it really necessary to ban EU officials from using it on their work phones? And if so, why?
1: There are ongoing investigations uh, with TikTok when it comes to the management of our data and, and privacy, and those are not concluded yet. So it's trying to be, you know, careful that data from the work that we do is not ending up in places where it uh, should not uh, end up. I think TikTok, they do quite a lot to show that they can protect data, while at the same time, I think it's a wise thing uh, to say, well, better safe than sorry.
4: Now, at this juncture, we're going to do something a bit different. We're inviting French journalist Anne glimarek for an outside quizzical look on the DSA and at the end of her reflections to put one thought-provoking question to you.
2: A Europe fit for the digital age? That's what Margrethe Vestager is expected to deliver. So, can Europe become fit for the digital age? or is it destined to remain in the shadow of the United States? Well, there's certainly no lack of ambition on Europe's part, or at least there wasn't when Le Grand Crocodile, Jacques Chirac, resistor of Anglo-Saxon hegemony, was president of France. Remember Project Quairo, the European digital giant Chirac wanted to create as a competitor to Google? Indeed, I was sure you'd forgotten about that. And speaking of Google, it's something of a bête noire when it comes to the commission. In her previous role as competition commissioner, Ms. Vestager dished out a fine of more than $4 billion to the company, one of several punishments it's received for abusing its market position. Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft have also been fined eye-watering amounts. And yet, it appears this company's products, services and influence play as large a role as ever in our daily lives. No wonder the US tech giants spent hugely on lobbying the Commission. The manner of that lobbying has come in for closer scrutiny lately, with MEPs setting up a whistleblower website to report dodgy tech lobbying. The flagship digital legislation of this Commission, so far, is the Digital Services Act, designed to regulate illegal content, promote transparent advertising and tackle disinformation. Few pieces of EU legislation have consumed as much energy from the EU institutions. As President von der Leyen said in her mission letter to Ms. Vestager, catching up where we lag behind means a passive approach is not an option for Europe just the spur for a woman renowned for her intellect, pragmatism and unflappability. You may also know that Miss Vestager likes to knit, a hobby we have in common. So far, she hasn't dropped a stitch. Maybe she's a modern-day incarnation of Madame Defarge, the revolutionary tricoteuse from Dickens' novel, a tale of two cities knitting away inscrutably while a chaotic revolution unfolds in Paris. The question that I'd like an answer to is whether, as was the case for Madame Defarge, the revolution can be tamed, or whether it takes on a life of its own.
3: That was French journalist Anne Glemarek there. So, Vice President, do you think the social media revolution indeed can be tamed, or are
1: we too late already? I don't think we have much choice, because we need to tame it. Otherwise, we put our democracy at risk. We put uh, innovation at risk. And I think they will judge us very, very harshly if we do not manage. Because then we have de facto left sort of the decisions that shape our society to decisions taken in transparency in closed boardrooms. And everything, of course, is in the enforcement. So now we have privacy legislation... We have legislation on how to provide digital services. We also have legislation on how to behave in a market if you have, you know, a lot of market power, what we call a gatekeeper. And we need to implement that. If we do not enforce it, it's worth nothing. So, so we are creating right now a community to help us look for compliance. So consumer organizations, NGO, privacy organizations, business organizations to help watch if social media and if market power comply with what democracy and has asked for them, because otherwise it will not be possible. And I think in particular, when it comes to, for instance, hate speech, other illegal stuff, uh, when it comes to harmful content, when some people use their freedom of expression to try to silence others, uh, we have a lot to do.
4: So that's maybe a good moment to sort of wind back to basics and try to understand the nuts and bolts of this highly complex legislation. Could you describe in a few words, what is the DSA? and why do we need
1: it? Well, I think now in all European countries, now you have legislation saying that hate speech is forbidden. But you don't really have a mechanism to make sure that this is true. So now the Digital Services Act will ask every platform to have a system you know, to deal with what is illegal, to take it down. But of course, they might be mistaken. There will be a gray zone. So if your content is taken down, you have the right to complain, to say, yeah, you might find this hurtful, but it's not illegal. So you need to put it back up again. And then you have things that are harmful. So it's not illegal, but it's, it's harmful, maybe disinformation. And here we have a code of uh, practice on disinformation. So if you're a big platform, well, you need to use that uh, in order for your services uh, to be fine. And also, if you're a big platform, you need to make a risk assessment. you probably heard the whistleblower Frances uh, Hogan, who says Facebook knows that Instagram may damage young women's mental health, but they don't care. Now they will have to assess, is this a risk? And if they find that there is a risk, they have to do something about it to take that risk away so that you can safely use services instead of taking the risk on your mental health. And all of that, of course, will be audited by external parties. And then there is the practical side of things, which means that if you're a platform and you, you sort of service small businesses, you need to know these businesses so that it's not some fake account that just wants to sell you you know, dolls with lead or something that is poisonous or, or doesn't really work, but that it's a real business where you can go complain to say, listen, this was not what I bought. I, I want my money back or I want you to repair this. So it's basically a system that brings order to our digital services uh, as we meet them.
3: Beyond that demand to better regulate uh, content and better police, you know, the appearance of abusive content or offensive content, what other things were consumers, organisations and digital users telling you in the run-up to the drafting of this legislation that they wanted
1: um, to see appear in the legislation? The main thing that sort of have been discussed back and forth is how to make sure that you can do two things at the same time that you can treat what is illegal in the real world is also seen and treated as illegal in our online world, while at the same time protecting our freedom of expression. Because that is the tricky thing. Because, of course, there is a gray zone between what is illegal and what is your legitimate use of your freedom of expression. And that has been the back and forth discussion, because it's a really, really important discussion and everyone, NGOs, organizations should engage in this in order to make sure that we get it right. Because otherwise we take this risk that authoritarian regimes on this planet, they will just say, ta-da, the Europeans are doing it as well. Now we can legitimately censor everything. And that is really not the point. And this is why this is a system with an obligation on those who will take down what is illegal, also to enable people to complain about it, eventually to have their things put back up again, if they are not illegal.
4: Now that leads exactly to our next question. Um, There have been a lot of concerns raised about possible encroachments on free speech and the media which are contained in the DSA. How do you answer these concerns?
1: We have some experience because we have this code of practice that has been in use already and all the big platforms, they have signed up for this. But what we have seen is that this is not enough. It takes way too long. It's not sufficiently systematic, uh, what has been done, even though uh, quite a lot of the platforms, they have made efforts in order to do better. But I don't think that it's legitimate in a society that becomes more and more digital, where more and more of our lives are played out in a digital world, if democracy do not have a strong presence. Because um, democracy should be, you know, something that is present in every minute of the day, no matter if that minute is spent uh, online or offline.
3: Let's home in now on the views of users and professional and cooperative bodies representing them. We've been talking to senior figures in two organisations. First, Iverna McGowan from the Centre for Democracy and Technology.
5: The Digital Services Act is a landmark piece of legislation. I think it's been rightly dubbed the constitution of the internet. So I think there's a wonderful opportunity in particular to hold not just platforms, but also governments to account. It's introduced procedural safeguards, transparency about algorithms. Um, and also obligations both on the platforms and on uh, judicial systems about how we deal with these individual disputes or uh, discussions about content. At the same time, unfortunately, there have been a few places that we're a bit concerned about. For example, the proposal allows law enforcement to act as trusted flaggers. In some places, obviously, um, law enforcement are not judicial authorities. They don't have independence. It's got to be capable,
3: doesn't it, Iverna, of adapting very quickly to an ever-evolving digital world. Is there anything you'd have your eye on for the next generation of digital legislation?
5: I think what we see again and again is that it's wiser to focus on some of those fundamental principles. How do we make sure that there's not pervasive tracking of individuals? How do we ensure that issues such as algorithmic discrimination, um, people are protected against that And how do we make sure that our privacy and data protection laws are upheld and robustly enforced in practice?
3: So pretty effusive praise there at the beginning of what we've just heard for the Digital Services Act, but also a basket of reservations. What, Vice President, would you pick out in particular that you'd want to address there?
1: Well, I think it's really important what was said that we need to know what artificial intelligence will do to all of this. Because there is a risk that artificial intelligence will discriminate us because it's built in a world that is discriminating. So we need to make sure that technology is in some instances better than humans. When you apply for a mortgage, when you want to enter uh, education, when you want to have an insurance. um, So, you know, all of these important areas that really makes a difference in your life that there is an obligation that if artificial intelligence is used, that you're not being discriminated against. So I think it's really important to focus where something real is at stake. And that of course goes for everything we do that it's value based, because we took a very strategic choice early on. And today it sounds absolutely trivial, but it was to make sure that technology serves people. It is for humans. It's a tool for us to build better societies. It is not for us just to be a small data point, something to be exploited from a capitalistic point of view. And the reason why it is not trivial is that technology can also be seen as something that is for the state to use to control the population, or it can be seen as something that is for the corporate part of society to make the highest possible profit.
4: Okay, let's turn to Jan Penfrat from the European Digital Rights Network of NGOs.
0: The DSA has achieved the visibility that we need for the issues around regulating online platforms, and I think that's really important. It has put the spotlight onto uh, problems that many people weren't aware of before the DSA. It should protect people's freedom of ex- to express themselves and to access information and it should also empower them to master their own online lives without being locked into what we call the walled gardens of large um, online platform corporations.
4: So Jan is it just about enforcement or are there other factors at play here?
0: Enforcing the DSA will be incredibly important and but on top of that the you can also start promoting and supporting independent, decentralized, open source software technologies, rather than getting hooked into the idea that the only thing we can do is regulate the existing market of centralized commercial platforms. We can do more than that. If we only see our online spaces as um, a kind of shopping mall, rather than a digital public town square, um, we won't be able to build it in a way that serves uh, people for the purposes that we use the internet for.
4: So in a nutshell, there are the walled gardens of the large online platform corporations where they want us users to be happily locked inside. And there is the question of the digital space imagined, either as a sort of shopping mall or as a digital public town square. Vice President, what's your take on these two points?
1: Well, one thing is very practical. Uh, For instance, myself, I would use sort of normal text messaging. I would use WhatsApp. I would use Signal. And I have to remember now, where was it that I got this message? So for the future, different sort of messaging services should work with one another so that I don't have to you know, keep track of what happens in three or four different apps, but I can have my messaging in one place. And that interoperability is what sort of breaks the walls of the walled garden so that you can go from one garden to another garden. You can have several homes, n- digital homes, uh, depending on, on what is that you want to achieve. And I think these are very practical things. And also that we underline that you actually do have a choice as to whether you want to be tracked or not. And here it's still work in progress. I think a lot of people there just pff, completely sort of overwhelmed by what they are asked uh, to look at. But when they ask a simple question, do you want this app to track you? People say, "Mm, no, actually, I'd rather not. Uh, And that, of course, is the point for digital empowerment that we do not feel scared or we are not in such a hurry to see the next cat video that we will tick any box that is presented to us.
3: Right, as we near the end of this podcast, now is our chance to put policy to one side and learn a little bit more about the person behind it. A series of quick-fire questions, Vice President, demanding short quick-fire answers. That's a deal.
1: What are you currently reading? I just finalised a Swedish writer called Julia Sandgren. The book is titled de Werker. I don't know if it exists in any other than the Scandinavian languages. It's it's excellent. But if I may recommend another one, it is called Clara and the Sun. And it's about a robot. And it sort of tells you what can happen once these creatures uh, becomes uh, quite human-like. What are
3: you knitting at the moment?
1: Oh, you know, I am the happiest uh, woman on this planet, because recently I became a grandmother for the first time. So this will be probably the most knitted baby that you can imagine. Caps, trousers, sweaters, everything. Whose job in the commission would you have if you haven't yours? Oh, well, you know, I tried to be the president of the commission and failed uh, in doing so, and here I am, quite happy with what I do. If I should look at my other colleagues... Well, it's really difficult to choose because uh, I think they all have very, very interesting things to do. What are your plans for when your post in this commission ends? You mean after my fourth mandate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a bit far in the future, so I think difficult to say.
4: What's your favourite dish to cook or enjoy with family and friends?
1: I love to cook and they eat it, so I must have at least uh, some kind of talent. But uh, I cook a lot of different things. And and these days, a lot of uh, vegetarian dishes because I have uh, three daughters and and they all prefer that. So it would be something cauliflower uh, in the oven uh, with a lot of spice uh, in order to make it a really yummy thing.
3: Yum, indeed. Um,
1: What's your biggest concern related to the sustainability
3: of the European project?
1: I think that it's really important that we show that it matters. As we did under the pandemic when vaccines were provided, when the corona pass was provided, that we have shown uh, under the energy crisis to make sure there was actually enough gas to heat our living rooms uh, over winter. And, of course, fundamentally, as we do now, uh, to show our support to the Ukrainians in the war that Russia has fought uh, against them, both to provide shelter for those who cannot stay, but, of course, also to help them defend their country. I think if democracy shows that, then people will also support it.
4: What is the one piece of advice you would give to the young Margarete Vesteyer if you had the chance to do so?
1: I think I would tell her to trust herself and trust others. Because in my experience, you know, nothing happens without a team. But every team consists of individuals who are different, and each and every one must both trust themselves to do their best, but also to trust others to do the same.
4: Margarethe Vesteire, Executive Vice President for a Europe fit for the digital age. Many thanks for joining
1: us. It was my pleasure. Really nice talking with you. Thank you.
4: Our
3: thanks also to our guest Jan Penfrat from European Digital Rights and to Iverne McGowan from the Center for Democracy and Technology.
4: And thank you too for tuning in. We look forward to your company at the next edition of Europe Calling, which you can listen on anytime on all the main podcast platforms.
3: For now, goodbye
4: from me, Paul Anderson. And from me, Olaf Bruns. What started with a virus so small,
0: your eyes couldn't see it. This is about... Providing future for humanity. We starting this.
1: The Commission has decided to fine Google 4.34
0: billion euros. Questo piano è l'occasione della vita. This is Europe's man on the moon moment. We are innovating here, and we
4: hope that you like it. Europe, d'une force commune d'intervention.
2: Long live Europe! Long live Europe! Vive Europe!